Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 20th, 2019. This is episode 2514 of the Survival Podcast, and it is, you know what day it is, Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's time for the Monster Show of the Week. Not monster monster trucks, but monster questions, monster answers from the expert council. And here's what we've got on deck for you today. Expert council member Gary Collins on working the night shift and staying healthy and alert when doing so with a special musical introduction of one of the songs that I just think is one of the most awesome songs ever written. I bet you can guess what it is. Yeah. Uh, Sean Mills on finding a good jump pack and accepting their limitations. Old Doc Bones on dealing with cellulitis and preps for it long term if the grid's down, etc. Rehabbing and restarting abandoned beehives with the bee whisperer himself, Michael Jordan. The best livestock for a first farming enterprise with Darby Simpson. Building a network of friends for homeschoolers, because you don't have school for all that socialization with Mike and Sue LaPrise. A four financial questions lightning round from the man himself, John Pugliano. And finding a new job on the down low for me, myself, and I, Jack Spirico. All of that and more in just a moment before we do that. Let's start out with a quote of the day. I like this quote, man. It's by a dude named Alphonse Carr. Carr spelled K-A-R-R, by the way. Here's what Alphonse said one time about roses and thorns. Some people are always grumbling because roses have thorns. I am thankful that thorns have roses. And this, to me, is really kind of more than just the glass half full versus half empty thing, right? So the glass half full, half empty thing kind of insinuates that any situation uh, can be looked at optimistically. And maybe not all of them can, but maybe a lot more of them should be looked at optimistically than than, than we tend to do. Here's like a completely random off-the-wall thing as I'm setting up some new aquariums here in my office. When you get on aquarium forums and all, you'll always find the people that are freaked out because there's snails in their aquarium. There's snails in my aquarium. If you have snails in an aquarium, that means you have a healthy aquatic system. They are a good thing. It's not, no, you look at them a different way and they're half full versus half empty. No, it's, you have a healthy aquatic system. If there's too many snails, there's ways to get them out. I won't go into that today. I'm just going to tell you when snails are in an aquarium, you have a healthy aquatic system. Healthy aquatic systems include snails. It's just not a problem at all. It's not a different way of looking at it. A rose without its thorns, is it really a rose? I don't know. But the thorns on the rose are part of the rose. There's not a negative there. That rose has a lot of potential. We can plant roses in places we don't want people like climbing into, like they're outside of our windows. There's always ways to understand things better. And hence, that way, well... Maybe there is something beneficial there. Not necessarily everything is beneficial. Even if you have a cancer that can be cured, it's better than a cancer that cannot be cured, but it's still not good that you have cancer. right? But most things really can be seen in a different light. And generally, the difference between it isn't attitude. It's actually education. With that, let's go ahead and remind you real quick that we do have a sale going on for MSB. You can get MSB 
Member Support Brigade, for those of you that are new, which gives you a ton of discounts and helps you, lets you help support the show for $25 a year for as long as you keep your account active right now. Discount code is GIVEME25. It's Friday. You have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And then it goes away like a fart in the wind, and it's not coming back, and I don't care if your dog ate your discount code. When I say that I have a sale for a period of time, it's for a period of time, and it goes away. Or else it doesn't really mean anything. So, again, the discount code GIVEME25, and the numbers are 25, not spelled out 25. I didn't want to make you have to type that much information. Give me two five, and you can get MSB for $25. Bucks. All right. With that, let's dig on into it today. Um, I have for you, uh, our first question today is for Gary Collins, and it's about working night shifts and the toll that puts on the body and staying healthy and staying alert. But like I said, I'm going to do kind of a special musical introduction to this one. With that, after a quick musical intro, Gary, take it away. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of TheSimpleLifeNow.com, where we discuss all things to make your life better, simpler, and just to have more freedom and happiness. Doesn't that sound great? Again, guys, for all those, new podcast, Your Better Life, now live. It's out there. Um, by the time you listen to this, it should be fully live and have a handful of episodes out. So make sure to go check it out. The format is there is no format. Anything I discuss is educational and hopefully interesting and just to make our lives better. Pretty basic. And also the simple life guide to financial freedom is out. It's shaking up some leaves out there, some tree limbs. Uh, people are kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? Different book. You know me. I do it differently. Now, to our question, uh, it, boy, working midnight shift, I've done it for years and years and years. I don't do it anymore. I run my own schedule, much different, but I did it in the military and also, God, I did it in college. I forgot. I was a security guard as well. And I ran, I worked mids for, gosh, I don't even remember how long, but I did it in the military and also in federal law enforcement. I've, I've worked well, probably easily a thousand midnight shifts over the years. Um, there's no real easy way for your body to adapt, except for I would say keep a, a steady schedule of it. The mistake I would make is I would work like a week of of mids at times, and then I would try and snap back into my schedule, normal schedule on the weekend, and then try and go back into midnight mode. I found at one point that just doing straight midnight mode the whole, you know, the whole way through, no matter what, if I was going to continuously work it, I know it's hard on family and friends and holidays, but it was just, my body couldn't take it. Here's why humans are not, at least modern humans are not nocturnal, meaning we are not geared to stay up through the night. We were hunter gatherers. We were up mainly during the day. So, 
we actually have a hormonal balance, circadian rhythms that put us to sleep at night where we, we hormones, uh, melatonin is excreted, putting us to sleep. Our skin reacts to sunlight and our eyes react to sunlight and, and lighter light. And that introduces cortisol and which is a wake up, get me going hormone. It's a stress hormone too, but it's also used as a wake up hormone to get you up. Otherwise you would just stay in bed all day. So by working mid, you're fighting, you're fighting biology and chemistry at this point. The best way is to eat as healthy as you can. It's rough. My stomach was all messed up because I would eat my meals during my midnight shift and it just, well, it didn't go well. I would recommend easy foods, boiled vegetables, you know, stay away from, you know, heavy red meats. They're just because they're harder to digest. It's not that they're unhealthy for you. So poultry, um, you know, fish, lighter meats, pork, they're easier to digest and make sure, you know, maybe uh, treat your food really well. I know it sounds a little goofy, but make it a little easier on yourself. But man, I wish I had the the magic answer on that one. It's just working mids is tough. Um, I hope that helps. Uh, don't use it as an excuse to not work on your health. Continue to work out. Continue to eat healthy. Get the best sleep you can. Oh, for day sleeping, what I did is I blacked out my room. <laughs> I, I, it took me a while to figure that one out. But Make sure you black out, have a way to black out your windows within where you're sleeping, and it will make a huge difference on being able to sleep during the daytime. Again, guys, you can find me at thesimplelifenow.com forward slash freedom is uh, the place to come and sign up and be a part of the inner circle of the simple life. All right, so um, I let Gary's words speak for themselves there, but on the little musical introduction, I just thought that I'd throw a little musical tidbit in for you on that song itself. If you've ever wondered who Marvin is, it is Marvin Gaye, and, and Jackie is Jackie Wilson in that song. We didn't hear those parts of it, but uh, that song is a tribute to both of those musicians who had uh, departed by the time this song was released in 1982, a little while ago. And, uh, you know, there's a line that says things like, uh, Marvin, it seems like yesterday when we were working, or Jackie, Jackie was the one, Jackie, it seems like yesterday when we were working out. Um, I don't think Lionel Rich and the Commodores was uh, working out in the gym with Marvin Gaye or Jackie uh, Wilson directly. Um, but I think that maybe they, you know, maybe Lionel was working out and, you know, you usually put some tunes on when you're in the gym. And, uh, you know, when you're working out. And I think that like that's that actually makes sometimes we actually uh, form things into our lives where this musician and their words and their songs and their music and what it means to them becomes part of our own lives. And it's like they're there with us. Or maybe even sometimes you take a walk and you got some podcaster talking in here that becomes part of your life. I'd like to think that's the case for some of y'all. Um, and, you know, on another note, we're going to have to, do like a Commodore's Week someday. I, I really think we need to. Uh, maybe John Adam can get on that because uh, it's just some amazing music. I'm definitely sometime in the future going to call an audible and play that whole song because I just forgot how much I love that song until that question came up and made me think of it. Uh, next up, we have a question on jump packs for Sean Mills. Hey, guys. This is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and I've got a pretty quick one today for you. Uh, this question came in from CJ. CJ said, what are your recommendations for vehicle jump starters to take with while traveling? 
While jumper cables are great, sometimes it's not the safest idea to be flagging down random people on the street to give you a jump. I've seen quote-unquote jump starters at Costco and other places from $20 to $200, and while most of them seem to have good reviews, I'm curious if you have recommendations. Thank you, CJ. Hey, CJ, good question, and this is one I've been researching myself for quite some time. Uh, anytime I'm in an airport and I see one of those guys drive by going to uh, jump someone off, I'll ask them what they're using, and I've asked uh, several AAA uh, tow truck drivers that I've run into at gas stations and things like that what those guys use, and they use the pretty heavy-duty, pretty heavy uh, jump start packs uh, mostly. That's from what, what I've seen. Uh, now, I do travel a decent amount for work, so my wife is here with the kids, and like most kids, there are activities and such that utilize vehicles to get to. Uh, the last thing I want is my family stuck at a Civil Air Patrol or a football game uh, with a dead battery. So, first of all, let me say we are AAA members, and I think that's a, a very good, valuable prep. Uh, it's not very expensive, and in addition to jumping off a dead battery for you, uh, they'll tow you, uh, they'll help you change your tire, things like that. So uh, I think that's a great uh, a prep to have. Uh, but going on to a jump starter, uh, my personal choice is the NOCO Boost Plus. Uh, NOCO has models in 400, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, and 4,000 amps uh, for the commercial user. And they even have a 20,000 amp model that you would use to jump off, I guess, tractor trailers and uh, big forklifts and, and things like that, cranes, I don't know. Uh, I do have one in my primary vehicle and another one in my wife's primary vehicle, so I actually own two of these. Uh, this is the number one bestseller on Amazon for uh, jump packs. Uh, it's got over 4,500 customer reviews. It averages a 4.3. Now, I'll be honest, I have not had to use it. Um, the, I, while I was researching this a couple years ago, I had a, a dead battery, uh, and that's the last time I've had one. Um, uh, we used to, uh, at the bonfires, we'd back the truck up and, uh, throw some music on, open up all the doors and, and play music. And that led me to a couple, uh, dead batteries because I stopped paying attention and going over and cranking the truck up every now and again. But, um... But since then, I haven't had one, so I haven't used this myself, uh, but it's got fantastic reviews. I keep one in mo both primary vehicles. I keep them topped up, and uh, I've, I've watched a lot of videos where these things have been tested, and they deliver what they say they deliver, at least in tests. So, uh, And then you got 4,000 reviews of people saying that's worked for them. Uh, I am providing a link to the model that I have for Jack to put in the show notes. Uh, also, in addition to the jumping function, it's got a USB port to charge up a phone, uh, as well as a pretty bright flashlight. So if you're in a situation where maybe you had a flat tire, you could take it out and uh, use it as a flashlight or even maybe a signal uh, behind the vehicle. So uh, that's what I use. And uh, again, like I said, that was a quick one. But CJ, thanks for the question. Hope that helped you out. And uh, as you guys have other questions, send them in to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. He'll get them to me and I'll get them answered. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.
Next up, got a question for old man Doc Bones. If he can wipe the dribble off his chin, get out of his convalescent bed long enough to talk to us about it. Dealing with cellulitis. Doc Bones, what's up with that? Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness, as well as an entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's letter for the expert counsel is from Ford, who writes, What medications or supplies should I stock in addition to regular medical prep for cellulitis? I've developed a history of cellulitis in my shins. Antibiotics have been used to treat it successfully, but I'm concerned about the chances of resistant bacteria. Can you recommend which antibiotics and supplies I should stockpile for you-know-what situations? Also, anything I can do to help prevent this recurring. It has come from both cuts and most recently chigger bites. I have used bug repellent with limited success and have become very diligent about keeping the area clean. Thank you, Ford. Ford, I've written a lot about cellulitis in the last decade and even have a section on it in our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Cellulitis is an inflammation of soft tissue. It can occur in any circumstance where your body's natural armor, your skin, is breached and bacteria invade deeper layers. It's very common. Very few people that spend time outdoors will avoid getting it from time to time. This would be especially true in survival settings where you have to perform exertions that you're just not accustomed to doing just to stay alive. Despite everything you do to care for a wound, there's a chance that an infection will occur. You can identify cellulitis by a few signs other than just pain. Redness, often spreading as the infection worsens, usually going up your arm or up your leg, depending what part of the body is actually injured. Swelling, which leads to a very shiny aspect to the skin in the area that's swollen. Warmth, which is obviously different than, say, on the opposite unaffected side. It's definitely going to be warmer on the red side than it is on the side that does not have the injury. And in the worst cases, accumulations of pus called abscesses can occur. This leads to a foul odor and the drainage of a whitish-yellowish discharge. If this condition is untreated, the infection can, in certain cases, spread to your circulation and become life-threatening. Cellulitis can be caused by many bacteria, but is most commonly caused by streptococcus and staphylococcus, which enter through a break in your skin. A more resistant version of staph, called MRSA, M-R-S-A, can make this infection even more difficult to deal with. Cellulitis is often treated, as it was in your case, Ford, with antibiotics. The most common antibiotics used to treat the infection that are available to the general public without a prescription are amoxicillin, cephalexin, trimethoprin, sulfamethoxazole, clindamycin, and doxycycline in their aquatic or avian versions. That is, fishmox forte, fish flex forte, fish sulfa forte, fish sin, C-I-N, and bird biotic, respectively. All this is in our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Now, don't forget that amoxicillin and cephalexin may cause reaction to those people who are allergic to penicillin and may not be effective against MRSA in some cases. To help prevent cellulitis and other infections, take these precautions when you have a skin wound. Wash your wound daily with soap and water. Do this gently as part of your normal bathing. 
apply a protective cream or ointment for most surface wounds and over-the-counter ointment such as bacitracin, triple antibiotic cream, even Vaseline helps to provide some protection. You also want to make sure you cover open wounds with a bandage and change that bandage at least daily. You want to follow the course of the infection by marking the boundaries of the redness with a marker. If it's spreading, make sure you're taking one of the antibiotics that I mentioned. In your specific case, Ford, you want to start wearing boots and high tops as well as long pants when you're outside and tuck your trousers into your boots. Although I can't vouch for their success, with chiggers, certain insects really don't like DEET repellents for skin and permethrin 0.5%, not for skin, but to treat clothing. The bottom line is to protect your skin. Your skin is your armor and you want to avoid a break in it, whether it's from an insect bite or whether it's from some other injury. This is Joe Halton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for watching. Hey, don't forget to check out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And do us a big favor and subscribe to doomandbloom.net so that you'll never miss any of our podcasts, videos, and articles as they come out. Thanks again. All right, next up, let's say that you come across a beehive that's been abandoned by both bees and humans, and not really anything wrong with it, but it's... You know, you're not sure what to do with it. It could have, you know, pests in it. It could have problems. It needs to be kind of rehabbed and put back together instead of go off to the junkyard. Well, what would you do about that? Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, has an answer for you. I'm Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer of a bee-friendly company located in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, the making of fine meads, Man, I got a great question, and it can be used for people that are getting out of beekeeping and or picking up used equipment as well. This question is to Michael from Justice. What are the steps to pick up and restart an abandoned beekeeping operation? I ran into a former colleague professor of mine, she knew that I was into self-sufficiency lifestyle and had some interest in beekeeping. She indicated her husband had to leave beekeeping a few years ago due to medical issues in the middle of the season of 2017. They have about 20 boxes plus a pile of caretaking gear. Some of the hives may be active, but she's not sure. I've got two boxes this year and I worked them with the local producer to harvest and maintain for about one-third of the product. He has equipment and kitchen room and license for canning, but he has no interest in letting me become competition. Where do I start? Just clean up and repair? Let it sit? Suggestions or considerations for cleaning? I'm thinking this year is too late to start, but you're the expert, and I am seeking to learn. And if there are any options to purchase the operation, what would you suggest to evaluate the item's condition and price consideration? I use eBay for comparison on other business assets, or would you suggest an alternative? Thanks for your input, 
justice. There's a lot here and a lot of information, and I've only got 10 minutes, so we're going to try to cover as much as we can. Well, Justice, here is my input from what you've told me. First off, you stated off that you have two boxes, and I'm going with that means you have two colonies of bees. And that if you're working with a mentor that's running an operation, uh, they don't look for competition, and they're giving you one-third for the product from the labor of your working operation. Um, you have been offered a chance to obtain a beekeeping operation that could have 20-plus colonies of bees and all the operating equipment. I would say, first off, the operation that you're working for, which would be your own, what are your plans for the operation, considering that you have a mentor and you're working with them? If they are mentoring you and uh, you're paying in product and stuff, vice versa, uh, it shows that you do have a valuable operation and that uh, maybe they want to partner up with you if, if you're willing to grow. You know, then it wouldn't be competition. Uh, this would give you an opportunity to grow with a working operation that's already working and giving them more product to sell. Or vice versa, you could probably become bigger and they might want to give you product and you sell it. If not, I would still work with them until you feel that you can run an operation as well as keep good ties with your mentor. Uh, that teaming up and selling product is always good. And that if your operation is working well, well, I guess that you'll just be on your own because you'll be making it on your own. Now for the operation that's being offered. First off, uh, has it ever been registered with any or all agencies that are needed to do retail sell for product? I would look completely into this. You always can sell product cottage, and I would be looking into your local cottage laws. But now that you know what the operation really is and really is not, ask about the records for the site. So see if this is, has any registration and what all they, they've put it through to, to have bees. And then ask the owners about records. Like when they treated for mites. Uh, what was the harvest of honey over the last three years? What were the products that they sold? Where? To whom? And what form of swarm prevention is on the site? A list of, of complete equipment is always needed. Uh, that would be sold in the exchange. Uh, after doing this, you kind of know what you're getting with the sale of the operation. You'll have to have information to make it probably a commercial operation from talking to the agencies in your local area. This will give you a heads up of what the operation is, what you have to do to make it become one, and how you're going to make income. Uh, what hours can you expect to put in the operation and how much the equipment is worth? And I would just ask them basically what they're looking for for the operation. If they say, hey, shoot us an offer, you know, uh, I would say, man, you know, without, without justification of what it all is, it's hard to give a price. So, you know, you need to know exactly what it all is, the condition that it's in, and basically, if it's working, if there are bees in it, and if anything's broken or not. I would work with the old owners and see what the operation looked like and how it was run. Was it a honey business, a pollination company, 
if they sold nooks of bees or just a hobby farm that got away from the owners. I will look to see if you could move the operation from the location to a new one. This is depending on what the laws are in place, what the new, what the old owner would want and for the sale. Uh, can the new location hold the stock of bees based on the amount of room needed to house all of them? As well as does it have adequate water, food, safety, and the laws for the new location? What price increases will it have on the homestead, such as feed for the bees, insurance, both for home as well as business operations? Does it bring value to the property or decrease it? Do you have a cost for the location to house the, house, house the bees? Do you have time for this type of operation? The biggest question most of the time is that is why? Um, what is in the good condition and what is not for you? If you're getting hives that have large mite counts or small hive beetles or foul brood and the colony has problems, is it worth getting? So inspections might be in order before purchase. If all goes well, you will need to set up a seasonal calendar for the operation of the hives. Going with and when are you going to have them inspected? Treatments, feeding, seasonal winning, honey flow, splits, and general times for inspection. Where are you going to store equipment that is needed for growth, regular operation, and even seasonal use? How would I look at what things are worth? I would check at different catalogs like Man Lake or Dannon. And then I just kind of look around and see what's being sold on Facebook and Craigslist. And then mark down as needed for used equipment. You know, bees are about 150 bucks. So if you get a good colony of bees, you know, they, they you know, they're going to weigh a quite a bit amount. You're not looking at a three pound package, but you know, if you have about 80,000 bees, it's going to be worth a little bit of money. A hive with full equipment's about $150. So both of them together on a minimum for a hive with bees is about 300 bucks. For 20 working hives, you're looking at around six grand on an average. And this is giving a little depending on the condition of the hives. There will be a cost for spinners, extra frames, suits, tools, just general equipment. Compare the operation to your mentors. Ask some questions implying that, man, if I was able to get into this kind of business, what would I be looking at? And what costs do you have when you run yours? You do not want to tip your hand, especially if you do not want to get, you know, on the bad side of their operation. Spend some time at both apiaries, learning the operation from your mentor, including them in the new adventure on the season that you'll be getting into. You don't have to tell them, but take some time to look at the operation that they have and then compare it to the operation that's for sale. Question, question, question. You can never ask enough questions on how the operation is ran or is. I would hate for you to get an operation that is failing and that's why they're getting rid of it. There's a lot of things that people go through when it comes to the operation of bees especially getting away from the equipment. How do you clean it? What do you do with it? I usually take all my stuff to a car wash, spray it all down with a high-pressure washer, and if it's really bad, on the far end, you can lie bath everything. 
by dipping frames, boxes, and everything in a lye bath. But most of the time, vinegar, baking soda, a little bit of soap, and some elbow grease, you can clean a lot of the stuff up. But it does take time. Make sure you're not getting in over your head and take the time to listen to what other people have to say in your community. Hey, I want you to smash the like button and share button on our YouTube page showing beekeeping, mead making, and urban gorilla living. Give us a heart on Instagram to support what we do with kids. And check out the events, up-to-day news, and what's going around the homestead on our Facebook account. I'm your pocket beekeeper, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company, helping you out when I can and where I can. I want you to remember to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Get it from a small cottage business. And make sure you help your fellow man. Because one day, you're going to need help too. Next up, a question for Darby Simpson, our farmer on the expert panel, on choosing livestock for a first farming enterprise. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This one coming in from Ken via MeWe. Uh, Ken asks, what is the best livestock to get started with when beginning a new operation? Uh, we have 10 acres that are open and three to five wooded, mostly saplings uh, in another area. Uh, and then he is working on fencing in about five acres of wood and pasture mix. Well, Ken, this is a bit of a loaded question. When you ask me what's the best operation to start with, uh, we really have to kind of walk through personal context. And that really involves, uh, you know, three main things. The, the most important one is, you know, how much money do you have to invest? Um, if you tell me, you know, hey, I've got $1,000 to invest and I want to start a farming operation on the livestock side – it needs to be pasture broilers, maybe rabbits, something like that. I would say pasture broilers because, look, if you're an American and you eat meat, you eat chicken. So it's pretty easy to sell chicken to most Americans, uh, particularly as educated as they are now. Uh, the other consideration would be how much time do you have? If you tell me, you know what, I'm kind of short on time. Um, I, I got a little bit of time to donate every day and... Uh, you know, I'm not sure I want to go to a farmer's market, but I've got money. Like I can invest some decent money into something and I don't have to have the return come back real soon. Uh, you know, it's hard to beat cows or, or even, you know, uh, pigs if you're kind of in the middle. If you've got less money to, uh, to, to invest, then pigs would be the way to go if you've got a couple thousand dollars. Uh, if you want to get started with cows, I mean, gosh, once you get your fence built, you're still going to need a couple thousand dollars at least. You're going to need to wait probably 12 to 24 months to get that money back. Um, but if the fence is built, and you've got your infrastructure in place, and by that I mean you know a watering system and a small shelter. Uh, you've got your your step-in reels and posts, and you know a little bit about rotational grazing. Man, cows are super simple. Like we can manage as many as 50 cows in less than an hour a day on our farm. But everything's built, and we've got a lot of experience. Um, and you know we're to a point now where we're selling lots of bulk beef year in and year out. Uh, so the customer base is built. Um, so there's just a lot that goes into this decision-making. Really, the middle ground is pork because you can finish a pig in like five or six months 
And you can sell a retail cut. You can sell halves and holes. It's a smaller investment for people. Um, so I, I think, you know, in your situation, knowing that you've got some, you know, some kind of wooded areas and you're already building some fence and you could maybe, you know, add on to that fence with some portable netting or build a little bit more fence, what have you. Uh, or even just rotate pigs within your fenced in area that, you know, pigs could be a great option. If you've got the money to buy a couple of cows, I think that's a good option. But again, if you need money fast and you've got less money to invest, you gotta go with the pasture poultry route. A thousand dollars, we can do some damage and we get our money back in like eight to nine weeks. You know, that's how fast that product is ready to sell. It's quick. It turns over fast. Cash flow. Uh, you know, is just absolutely amazing with pastured poultry. So, um, again, really boils down to your personal context and how much time you have to devote, how many dollars you have to devote, and kind of what your goals are. You know, chickens, you're selling retail. You're selling one or two at a time, most likely, unless you're going to pick up a restaurant account or do a, uh, you know, like a pre-sell uh, package deal where people come and pick up, you know, 20 chickens at a time, like we've done with our chicken CSA. Um, man, there's so much to get into. Uh, Ken, these are the things that I love to get into in, uh, the consulting I do or in workshops or when I'm, you know, doing a, you know, out speaking, um, at conferences and stuff like that. I love brainstorming and problem solving. It just gets me going and trying to help people figure out like, yeah, you want to go farm and you want to do livestock, but like what animal is the best fit for you and what sales method is the best fit for your life? What are your goals? Is this, you know, a, a part-time, you know, side hustle, but you want to make some serious money uh, or, or like, do you have the aspirations to take this thing and make it a full-time income for yourself or maybe enough that it's like for your whole family? Um, there's just so much to get going on, but those are my thoughts. It really, the first thing you got to figure out, how much money do I have? The second thing you got to figure out, you know, what sales method do I want to try and take when I go to sell stuff? And then, you know, like, uh, uh, the, the third, the third thing is, you know, like how much, you know, do I really want to do with this in the future? Like where, where do I think I see this thing headed? And honestly, you may not know and that's okay. So those are, uh, those are my, uh, you know, thoughts on the matter. I hope you find that helpful. I wish I had some more information because I could give you a whole lot more guidance and direction, um, on what I think might be a good fit for you. Uh, and Ken, I'll, I'll bring this up now. Um, I'm doing a workshop here in Southern Indiana, uh, on October 19th and 20th. And this is exactly the kind of thing that I want to accomplish in these workshops. Now, I'm doing this with a, a good friend of mine, another uh, Indiana farmer. His name is Luke Gross. Uh, Luke is farming full-time. Luke is producing about $200,000 in annual sales on just 20 acres. You didn't misunderstand me. 200000 20 acres, $10,000 an acre, Luke is providing for a family of six. He and his wife have four small children. They farm full-time. This is what they do. Uh, well, Luke farms full-time, and I think his wife <laughs> keeps herself uh, busy chasing four little kiddos. But um, they work together. This is what they're doing in a regenerative fashion. And so we're doing a workshop in southern Indiana, again, October 18th – or sorry, October 19th and 20th. 
Um, and we're going to have a classroom day where we walk through all the stuff I just talked about. Like, how do you go sell stuff? How do you assess a market? What sales strategy works for you? The neat thing is that Luke and I, like, we're totally different when it comes to sales. I'm all about farmer's markets. Why? Because I'm right next to Indianapolis and Bloomington, Indiana. I got all these wonderful farmer's markets, tons and tons of people. I want the retail bang for the buck. Um, and then I do a lot of bulk purchases. I love selling a family a whole pig and a half cow every year. It's awesome because like there's not much marketing involved once you get that relationship established. Luke, on the other hand, does one farmer's market uh, in the summer and one in the winter and a little bit of bulk sales. He mostly does a meat subscription CSA where it's a monthly box. And he does tons and tons and tons of stores and restaurants. Like his thing is he digs working with chefs and we just have totally different styles, but we're both selling like up to $200,000 worth of stuff a year. So we're doing one day in the classroom where we go through all that marketing and setting retail prices and wholesale prices. We're going to walk you through all that and like learning how to tell a story and figuring out what's going to work well for me and my family in terms of a sales and marketing strategy. And then the second day is on Luke's farm where we literally walk through Everything, his brooder, his open cell pastured poultry setup where the, the birds are out running around and netting. And it's not just broilers. It's also ducks and turkeys. He does 100% grass-fed lamb. He does 100% grass-fed beef. And he's doing forest-raised pork. And we're going to walk through each and every one of these systems. And, oh, by the way, he's planted tons and tons of regenerative trees. He's a permaculture guy. We're going to walk through that. You're going to see his freezer system, how he manages the CSA shares in the freezer uh, and we're going to provide lunch that second day as well. There's some bonuses. If you're one of the first 10 people to sign up, you get some freebies. You get a free half-hour consult with either myself or Luke, a free set of chicken tractor plans. Um, and we're also doing an optional meet-and-greet dinner that Friday night uh, at a local restaurant. So we can just hang out and chat, get to know one another. Uh, if you're if you're a grass-fed life insider, this two-day workshop is only 299 bucks. If you're not an insider, you can sign up for $5. Uh, you can do that at grassfedlife.co as well as find out details on the workshop. If you don't want to be an insider, that's cool. It's only $50 more to come. It's $349. And there are also some really big discounts on all of the online courses that Diego and Footer and I have put together, including our full Farm Business Essentials course, which is normally $1,000. You sign up for this workshop, you can grab that course for $400 when you're registering. So tons of information out there. I, if you can't tell, I get really excited about doing in-person workshops because I love helping people solve these big questions because I want to see you be successful in farming. I want to see you be able to make money and I want to see you be happy doing it. And it's, it's a difficult thing to navigate. That's what I've learned the last 12 years and I want to help other people be successful. I love teaching and sharing. So Check it out. I hope to see some of you out uh, at this coming October, again, the 19th and 20th. And just a quick side note, this is the last workshop I'm doing for probably the next 12 to 18 months. So if you want to learn from me in person, this is it. As always, everybody, have a wonderful weekend and take care. Next up, you know, the one good thing, depending on how it works out, about sending your kids off to the government school is they are surrounded by lots of other kids, and it gives them an opportunity to make friends. For some of them, it works out really good. For others, well, it doesn't. It just depends on who they're with and how they get along and what kind of kids happen to be in the school that your kids are going to and the classes that they're in, et cetera, and how that school is run. But at least the opportunity's there. Uh, now, let's say you're trying to find kids for your 
your kids to play with and you're having trouble doing it as a homeschooler. I think there's a lot of options there. And with that, Mike and Sue LaPreeze are going to tell you about, well, a few of them. Mike and Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue LaPreeze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you love to live for the expert council. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSB community. Today's question comes from Jen. Here's what she says. Hi, LaPreeze family, and thanks for reading this. I ventured into parenthood thinking my plan of a stay-at-home parent and homeschooling would be the best possible cause of action for my little one. But as you, of course, know, parenthood tends to throw curveballs at you. The problem we're encountering now is that she's an only child and lonely. She's telling us about how she wants to play with other kids. The problem is our friends don't have children, let alone children her age. To complicate things more, the stay-at-home parent is her dad. There's very strange stigma when the stay-at-home parent is a guy. While I might be able to join a mommy group, I seriously doubt he would be welcome. I have no idea what I should do. Please help, Jen. One of the things I really love about the TSP community is that Jack takes so many questions and then he gets other people's advice because every family has problems. And those problems all require that you find a solution. But you have to do it on your own. You can reach out and ask for help. And I just really love that. So the main gist of the answer for this is a great saying, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. And so we're not saying dump your old friends because they don't have kids, but you might want to start gathering some new friends that fit more into the lifestyle that you currently have. You need to take responsibility and to take action. So one of the things about being uh, uh, a homeschool family is, yeah, sometimes you've got to take action. At one point in time, uh, we started a scout troop, and we started with five families. Yeah. And by the time we left it, we started it, but it, it was time for us to move on. There were 300 people in that scout troop, 155 kids plus you know, another 150 parents. And we've started co-ops and other scout troops as long as we've moved along and moved. And um, so you just say, this is what I want to do. And you gather people in. And so like, for example, we moved out to the country and it's been really hard gathering people in. And I had to change my idea of co-oping because I wanted country people to come. And so two of the families in our co-op, one has nine kids, one has 10, 10 kids under 13. And she gets up in the morning before co-op and she milks two cows, takes care of the chickens. I mean, she's got this long list to do. And so our co-op starts at 11 now instead of 830 in the morning. And um, so you have to adjust and gather people that are doing the things you love. And it's it's hard. But like you're saying, one of the things she said in her question was she doesn't feel like her husband would be welcome, maybe. And except for a mom's night, where it's literally mom's night out kind of thing, all the other homeschooling things that we have, I feel like they're thrilled when a dad shows up. If a dad shows up to help with co-op, you know, we have a dad that arranges twice a year a giant um, Nerf gun war at the park, and he makes he makes barricades. And, I mean, it's just amazing what he does. And so unless you're a jerk... I mean, everybody wants you to be there and help because the kids need dads around and it's really fun. And so you could even host a homeschool dad's night and say, hey, guys, you want to meet at the bar? There's a football game. Let's get together. Yeah, that's one of the things you could do. And you as a parent, it's a different conversation 
when other people are like, well, I just drop my kids off at school and they take care of it. It's a different conversation when you homeschool and you need advice. Yes. And so one of the things that we've seen uh, with grown up homeschoolers who had a bad experience homeschooling, many of them cite being isolated and uh, come to resent their parents. So those are the, the kids who have their bad experience are the kids who aren't interacting with other children. Yeah. And that's it's not an everyday thing, though. But I would say for a three-year-old, your minimum play dates might be twice a, me- twice a week. And then you're going to stay. You're going to get there early, and you're going to stay as long as there's other kids playing there. And so it's like everything else in life. When you have a child, it's how you spin it. So you've got to sell the anticipation. If your child is saying, I want to play with my friends, I want to play with my friends, I want to play with my friends, you can say, oh, I'm so excited. You want to play with your friends because... We're going to see them on Tuesday and we're going to go to the park. And you can even, especially for little kids, make a little calendar and count down days with them. And then you have to be really consistent so they can trust that you're going to get them to that next event and they're going to get to hang out with friends. And then they won't, it won't be so needy. So the homeschool community, when we first started in Houston, it was far. It was at least an hour to get anywhere where there would be other homeschoolers because there weren't very many. And we had the car one day a week because we had one car. And um, we would drop Michael off at work and we would go to an activity and then we would go grocery shopping and pick Michael up from work and then have another 45 minutes to get home. So it's a lot of mileage that one day. But um, our kids really needed that. So before Google and Facebook, it was hard to connect But now, usually on Facebook, if you do your county, whatever county you live in, you'll find a homeschool group on there and start connecting with them. And you probably will find multiple homeschool groups on there because, ironically, there's like every kind of homeschool group. In a big city like San Antonio, there's just for the Air Force Base, just for lesbians, just for Wiccans. I mean, it's just crazy. You can find it. Um, But you don't want to be an antisocial homeschooler. Because that's not what your child needs. You've got to step out of maybe some comfort zones of your own and start interacting. And another thing to consider is some kids, they like old people and they count them as friends and they can really enjoy that. So it doesn't always have to be children if you can find the right old person. I mean, I think kids like me. (laughs) Yeah. One of our granddaughters, she really likes older folks as well. This is true. And it is easy to stay home when you're homeschooling because you think, oh, I got to get all the schoolwork done, clean the house, plant a garden. But your kids need to get out and they also need to be with other homeschool kids. So going to church is good and there's good kids. Usually there's some homeschool kids, but it's not quite the same connection that you have. So I would say what you need to do is take action. And some of that might be looking at places and say, I'm going to have to drive a little longer. So my lifestyle is going to change. And so I would say, take that into consideration as you're looking at these things, your lifestyle needs to change. I need to have uh, make new friends who have kids. I need to be willing to travel for my child. Uh, make that commitment. So this has been Michael and Sula Preece with HaloBasu.com. Back to you, Jack. You know, the, the reality there is there are just tons of ways to get your child engaged with other children 
um, that don't involve sending them off to government indoctrination centers. And the key is giving them activities to get them involved with. And the beauty of those is they're voluntary. So if there's a child that's a problem there, you can go to a different opportunity, or maybe that child will go away uh, if it's a well-run activity. And there's lots of other ways kids can meet each other. Uh, next up, let's uh, hear from John Pugliano. He has for us not one, not two, not three, but four, and well within his time limit, four financial questions in a lightning round. John, what's going on, man? Hey, TSP. I have a number of questions. I'm going to try and get to as many of them as I can. The first two questions come from MeWe Monday Chat, and I'm not sure exactly who submitted these, but here's the first question. What are your thoughts on virtual banks, i.e. online direct Internet banks with no branch locations. As long as your money is in an FDIC-insured banking institution, doesn't matter if it's a local credit union, a regional bank, or a big multinational company like J.P. Morgan, as long as that bank's deposits are covered by FDIC insurance, then you know that you're dealing with a legitimate institution and your principal is not at risk. So it really comes down to what services you're looking for. So what I'd encourage you to do is check the yields that they pay on their deposits. Find out how convenient it is to deposit and cash checks. And once it's established what type of yield you're going to receive on your money, then it really comes down to what other type of products and customer services do they offer and what, if any, fees are associated with that. I personally deal primarily with two banking institutions. The reason I have two different banking systems is that the local one provides me with excellent hands-on person-to-person assistance, while the other bank is really convenient to use electronically. You know, They have a great website. They have a really good app. They offer excellent customer service over the telephone. And so between those two institutions, I can take care of all my banking needs. Now, our second MeWe question is related to the first one. His question is, where should I put the money I'm saving for a house in two to three years? Well, again, that question relates back to our first question because I'm going to tell you if I'm saving for a house and it's something that I want to purchase in the next couple years, well, I'm not going to do anything exotic with that money, and I'm most likely not even going to care a whole lot about what the rate of return is because we're talking about a relatively short period of time. I'm going to keep that money in an FDIC-insured bank account. I'm going to shop around locally and online and find a banking institution that provides me with the services that I need and offers a competitive interest rate. And a good way to check competitive interest rates is to use the website bankrate.com. And you can see on there that just for overnight savings account type deposits, there are banks that are paying about 1%. And then for a one-year certificate of deposit, they're talking about maybe 2%. We're unfortunately in a rate environment where these short-term lending rates are extremely low. And that's just the reality of the situation that we're in. So with that in mind, you know, look around, shop around for your local banks and credit unions. See what they're paying. Make sure that it's FDIC insured. Keep your money there. You know it'll be safe. And whenever you do decide to purchase your home or make your down payment, you know that the money will be readily available and you won't have any risk of loss of principal. In your situation, you want to be more concerned about the safety and the reliability of your money than you do worrying about trying to get an extra percent or so in interest rates. Now, our next question comes from Michael W., And Michael says that he's 30 years old and he wants to know if he should include Social Security in his retirement projections and what is a safe rate of return to use for the stock market. 
Well, Michael, I don't want to get into the whole rabbit hole of unfunded mandates and how the system can possibly collapse because we can discuss those scenarios all day long. But I really believe that the bottom line is that, yes, you can count on Social Security being there when you retire. Now, you're 30 years old, and that's a long way into the future. And the Social Security system and payouts are definitely likely to change over your lifetime. Perhaps it'll be privatized. But I'm 58 years old, and I've been hearing this same gloom and doom story that the system's going bankrupt all my life, and it's still around. And I really think that the system is stable enough that they'll keep kicking this can down the road for generations. And then as far as projecting growth rates on your personal retirement savings, you mentioned that Jack Bogle has talked about rates of return being in the 4% to 6% range. Well, I agree with Jack Bogle. I think that in the next couple decades ahead, we're likely to see the stock market produce rates of return that are much lower than what we've seen historically over the last 50 years. That has a lot to do with demographics, particularly the aging of the baby boomers. And so I think it's a very safe assumption to use a growth rate going forward of somewhere in the range of 4 to 6%. That's a lower number. It's a conservative number. And that's the number that I personally use in my planning and in my projections. Now, finally, our last question is from Mike in Boise, Idaho, and Mike is asking about municipal bonds. Now, he has some complicated questions here, but specifically he's asking about what can he look for in his income portfolio that would allow him to know whether or not he has risky municipal bonds that may be in bond funds that he's invested in for his retirement savings. So, Mike, let me give you a short answer here. I think that bonds in general are very risky, and personally, I think it's a much larger bubble than what we see even in the stock market. What you're looking for as you review your portfolio is you're looking for the phrase investment grade. Now, there are different types of rating agencies, and they use different alphanumeric scores to calculate investment grade. For example, a standard and poor's index rating for investment grade bonds would be triple A rating or double A rating, triple B plus. If you want to be ultra safe, I'd encourage you to stick with investment grades that are rated like triple A, double A, and avoid anything that's rated at B or lower levels. Now, the rate of return that's paid on these triple A rated bonds is significantly less than what you'll receive from the high yield bonds. But remember, on Wall Street, high yield is a euphemism for junk bonds. In fact, you'll even see some ETFs that are identified specifically as junk bonds or they'll have junk or JNK right in the ticker symbol. Now, it doesn't mean that those bond funds are in imminent danger of defaulting, but go back and look at history, look at any period of time whenever the country goes into a deep recession, and you can see just how poorly those funds perform when things get bad. And so I just don't think it makes a lot of sense to take on all that additional risk just to pick up a couple extra percent of yield. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. So next up, I've got a question that really comes down to looking for um, a job on the down low. If I read the entire email, it'll take longer than, well, maybe not longer, but close to as long as my answer. So um, basically, this person wants to know about, number one, 
um, looking for a job and being on LinkedIn and things like that, and that may be tipping off the current employer that something's going on. Additionally, this guy does side gig consulting work, which he doesn't advertise because obviously the company he works for might see that as a conflict of interest. And so the company's been doing some downsizing. He thinks he's safe, but he's seen some stupid shit happen. And when you have a company doing as much downsizing and cutting as they're doing, there's always a chance you're on the block. Guy's my age and feels like if I'm going to move, I want to do it on my terms, not being kicked out the door. And you're probably familiar with my statement that the best time to find a job is when you already have one. When you have a job, you are more attractive to another employer. Uh, they will work harder to get you. They will offer you more money because you're not in need. Where when you don't have a job, even when there's a good reason for it, there's always a stigma to it. Like, well, why aren't you employed now? All right. It's almost better to have a job handing out bubble gum to kids than it is to not have a job at all in some ways. So let's split this into the two different worlds that it's in. As far as LinkedIn and that, with having your profile updated and all your skill sets there and all, no employer should have a problem with that. In fact, they should actually have a problem if you don't because as an employee, especially a key employee, you are a networking resource for your company. So I would never say out on LinkedIn, like, hey, I'm looking for a job or any social media where you can easily be seen. But having an updated profile, it, it does mean that you might be approached by a recruiter. Because, like, saying I need a job really isn't the way you get a job much anymore. But having a really good profile out there, um, that's a, a way that people that work for companies like I used to run, that's who we used to look for. We didn't look for the person who was begging for a job. We had positions that we wanted to fill, and we looked for candidates for those positions that weren't looking for a job. Because if you're looking for a job, that employer that we're working for could easily find you on their own. We're headhunters. So that's really who utilizes things like LinkedIn is more headhunters and, and, and than anything else. Um, when you say, I need a job, it's almost as bad as saying we need someone for a job. And understand when companies are saying, hey, we need somebody, they're desperate. They don't, through their networks and all their contacts and everybody they know, they don't have somebody to do what they need done. All right? And, and that, so it's desperation on both sides. And people are finally starting to work that out. Um, so when you're looking for a better job, you, you do want a good updated resume. But you don't want to lead with it. What you want to be doing is talking to people that you know, contacts that you know, making new contacts, um, and putting the word out and feelers out that you're interested in possibly making a move because your company's doing a lot of downsizing or whatever it is, and let people come to you. And that is the best way because if somebody knows somebody that knows somebody that hears that somebody needs somebody and you get referred even that four or five off, uh, your value perceived going into negotiations is about 100 times higher than any candidate that comes across uh, with a resume to a job posting. On the consulting and side gigs, if you want more of that, getting more, a lot more of it without marketing, what you're able to do is probably a bad thing or a hard thing to do. Um, even when someone knows someone that wants to refer somebody to you, saying, I know a guy is not as powerful as being able to say, well, here's what you can look at. Now, if they know you really well, they might say, hey, look, here's his LinkedIn profile. But then that person that's needing a consultant realizes, well, i got a full-time employee that's also a consultant. The easiest thing to do if there's enough of this work to make it worth marketing in any way, is create a, create a corporation and market the company. 
market the company, you know, and think about how to market is we're small, we're nimble, we take smaller projects that other large companies won't, etc. And then you can market the company without your name on it. And then you also have an asset. And if you build that up, you're able to, because you didn't market it on your name alone, it does give you the potential maybe to get a little bit bigger in the future. And if you don't, you don't. But it keeps your name out of it. Because I can tell you that people do get kind of into trouble as working as consultants plus as employees, especially when they're key employees. Because are you, are you consulting with a competitor is one thing. The other thing is, so if, if you work a job running a cash register or, uh, I don't know, painting widgets or something, when you go home as your employer, I kind of expect that, you, I don't, that whatever you do is not my business. Whether you're putting together macaroni necklaces and selling them on eBay or taking a dump, I don't care. It's not like I pay you by the hour. If you're a key employee for me and you're putting significant effort into another enterprise, maybe I need another key employee. Now I wouldn't get rid of you alone for that. But let's say I'm in a situation where you know you said you're cutting something like a half a million dollars out of a department every year, and I got two people and one of them's got to go, and one of them's a company man as far as I can see, and the other one's moonlighting. That's why you're nervous in the first place. You know that. So to me, that's how you address that. You need to address having your profile is simply that's what everybody that's a professional does today. Don't be putting out resumes in your name. Market your side hustle as a business. You can even do a DBA on that. You don't even need a corporation. You know, put up yourself a little five-page brochure website. Make a LinkedIn profile for your business. Keep your name off of it. If somebody really wanted to do some heavy-duty detective work, they could probably find out that you are the name behind it. But unless it's bluntly in people's faces, it really doesn't matter. So don't put your name on the website, etc. Uh, do it anonymous on the, uh, you know, keep all your information private on the domain registration. Just don't make it really obvious or, you know, do the domain registration in the name of the company or the DBA. And then heavily market your consulting through people that know people but have them refer people to your company and that keeps everything nice and clean you can set up you can use a service i use for my 800 call in number called call 8 k a l l the number 8.com you can set that up and create a very professional appearance Uh, you can have it ring through to your cell during certain hours, go to voicemail during certain hours. Even if you have enough with a partner, have it go to a partner during certain hours versus you. Uh, you can say, I don't take clients outside of a given area. It, it's really, you know, for a couple dollars and six cents a minute, uh, it really, it's like having a high-end phone system that you can run from a, a, a browser anywhere in the world. So between that, a good domain name, good professional appearance, keep it kind of generic, um, and then you, you know, somebody will get back to you, that type of thing. Um, you should be able to keep this all on the down low, meet your obligations to your current employer. And, and I personally think that anybody that's been at a company for any significant length of time, especially when you've gotten to the point where I'm not probably going to earn a lot more money in the next five years than I am now, and there's not a whole lot more for me to learn, should always at least have an ear to the ground and an open mind toward what is the next opportunity. Um, because... No matter how much you think your employer likes you, the day that push comes to shove and it's between your boss and you, you become disposable. And I've seen it happen to so many people. And I've seen it happen to people in companies who still have old school retirement plans and all, you know, a year, uh, 18 months out from full retirement. 
and, and basically losing that full retirement because, well, it just made sense on the bottom line. So uh, I think you should be as exactly as loyal to your employer as your employer is to you. And unless, like, it's your brother or your dad or something, the answer is they're not. They're not loyal to you. Even if your boss is, the company isn't. Unless your boss is and the, he owns the company, they're not loyal to you. It's just not how America works. It's not how it's not how corporations work, and honestly, it's not how they should work. Uh, a market's going to market, and every employee should look at themselves as an independent, self-employed contractor, even if you're not paid that way. And, and what that means is, when you are no longer of sufficient value to the company to warrant you being retained, you won't be. So that's that's my approach, and I really believe the day of the conventional resume is dead. I believe the reason you have a resume is for the formality it represents after they've already decided they're interested in you. Um, the last two positions of employment I had before I did this, I gave my resume to HR after I had an offer because they had to have one for their file. right? And, and that was over 10 years ago now. That's over 15 years ago now. So we are really in a different world. So that's my answer on that one. Anybody that has any thoughts on this that's been through this situation, um, the specifically uh, the, the marketing yourself as a consultant uh, without getting burned, I find to be very, very interesting and something that I think maybe we could, uh, we could probably help a lot more people within this audience that want to do the same thing. Maybe someday we'll even think about putting a show together on here's the steps to set everything up. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. we got another great show today. I want to thank the Expert Council for all of the great answers, all of the people in the audience who wrote in or got involved with MeWe Monday Chat. Remember, on Monday morning this coming week, from 10 a.m. to 10.30, maybe 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., it depends, I will be on MeWe at the TSP chat room. So you can come check out the Survival Podcast Hangout on MeWe, become a member of MeWe, and if you get into the chat, you will be able to hang out with us and some really cool people. And, boy, I send those, I mean, I'm telling you, when I do MeWe chat for the Expert Council and I get a good question, I go Control-C and copy it and pull up my email program, and I send it straight over to the council, and they've been really good about answering those. Next week, we'll be hearing from some folks we haven't heard from from a while. Darby, we hadn't heard from a while. Uh, we will hear from him again next week. I have two from Patrick Rohrman. Uh, he's off the Pikers list. He's probably mad at me because he got some answers in and he didn't get on the air in the last two weeks, even though he got them in on the road. Well, I just do them in the order they come in unless I'm doubling up on somebody. So we've got some good stuff coming to you next week as well. And uh, But I could use more questions for the expert counsel, TSPC expert in the subject line. Uh, tell me who it's for and uh, give me your question, one-line question. Then give me your details. It'll go easier that way. Or come check us out on MeWe Monday. With that, let's talk about our item of the day. I didn't bring out a new item of the day today because I forgot to mention the item of the day yesterday. Uh, I love this thing, man. It is the King Cooker, and it's spelled K-I-N-G-K-O-O-K-E-R, 12-sought leg and wing grill rack. What this does is it either hangs your wing tips by or your wings by the wing tips. Or it hangs your drumsticks by, well, the little end that you grab on to eat your drumsticks slides into a little slot. It'll hold 12 of them. It'll hold 14 wings if you're a little creative in how you do it and put one on each end. But designed to hone 12 wings or 12 legs. And what it does is it allows the hot air to cook them and crisp the skin. And if you've ever cooked wings or legs or any kind of skin on chicken on a pan, you know that the bottom side never quite gets crisp. The only way you can get better skin than using this thing is to deep fry the dead gone chicken. 
I'm telling you, it is awesome. Lots of things you can do with it. A dry rub. Jerk chicken is awesome this way. Uh, you want to check it out. The damn thing's not really expensive. It's about 12 bucks with free shipping on Amazon Prime. Uh, I made Walker's Wood Jamaican Seasoning Jerk Chicken Lakes for the 2018 workshop with this thing, and people destroyed that chicken. Now, that didn't have quite the crispy skin because, well, when you reheat 70 chicken legs, it's hard to keep them crispy. But, man, you've got to give this thing a try. It works on your oven. It works in your oven or in your stove. And in my write-up, I give some tips so that you don't end up with, like, grease catching on fire in your oven or setting flames up in your grill and things like that. It's really easy to do. Uh, but it's probably one of those little things that's like, you know, a $12, $13 product that just looks like, well, that's eh, nice to have. Kind of changes your your whole cooking world just a little bit. And remember, you don't have to get that. If you're going to buy anything online anytime, but you know today or this weekend, uh, just go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z dot com before you buy and start your shopping there. And as long as you start there, you help us no matter what you buy. That brings us to our song of the day. So we've been doing um, Superman songs this week. And um, I decided I was going to do an audible. So John John Adam gave me like six songs to pick five, and I picked four so far. And I had two songs I was thinking about doing. One is a really, really old one called Pocket Full of Kryptonite um, by, th uh, by Spin Doctors. And I thought about doing that one because I really liked that song and the sound of it and the groove to it and all. But it's, that song's really from Jimmy Olsen's perspective, and it doesn't really fit the Superman theme, right? The other song that I thought about doing, and I like this song actually better anyway, and I wanted kind of a jam and rock song for a Friday. It's just called Kryptonite by a band that I think is really underrated, honestly. It's Three Doors Now, uh, known for their contribution to caveman commercials, but they are really just a great band. And what this song is really about is a relationship, whether that be romantic or friendship, it could be any type of relationship, where one person's the Superman in the relationship. One person is the one that's always picking up the pieces. One person is the one that's always strong. One, and, and the other partner doesn't necessarily take it for granted either. They know it. They call that other partner the, the, the Superman. They see them as a Superman. But this begs the question, if I fall, if I'm ever not able to be Superman, will you pick me up? Will you help me be Superman again? See, there's so many relationships in this world, whether they're friendships, business relationships, partnerships, romantic, doesn't matter, that are one-way. They're one-way relationships. Good, strong friendships. Good, strong partnerships. Good, strong business relationships. Good, strong romantic relationships are two-way streets. One partner may be the stronger partner, but really what makes that work, even if it never happens, is the knowledge that if I fall... You'll pick me up. That's what this song is actually all about. And it's also just a damn good rockin' jam to go out on a Friday. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't.
If I'm alive and 